All right, gentlemen. Watch out for when that rush hour traffic. Those old people that have lost their pay. <laughs> hey, hey, NASCAR Nation. I'm Mamba Smith, and welcome to this episode of Mark Mamba and the Mayor. We're heading to Darlington, and we'll look back at some of the most amazing finishes from the track, Too Tough to Tame. Remember that time Jeff Burton tried to steal a million bucks from Jeff Gordon? Well, Jeff's going to tell us all about it. The pressure of the playoffs is on. If you can't handle the heat, get out of the kitchen. Let's hit it. It's Mark Mamba and the mayor. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Mark Mamba and the mayor. It's your boy Mamba Smith here. Of course, Mark Martin, Jeff Burton. Guys, we're going to the lady in black. She's a little tough sometimes. She's a little mean sometimes. She is. Definitely. uh, Well, Get your attention. Jeff, um, I'm, I'm, we're just going to start right off the top with, with you because in 97, you got her attention and you had a shot at a win. And I've heard it before. You got to lose one before you win one. But the win that you lost to Jeff Gordon and the Southern 500, 1997, you about took a million dollars out of that boy's mouth. Yeah, I, uh, I should have taken a million dollars out of his mouth. One of those races where it was actually Dale Jarrett, myself, and Jeff Gordon uh, seemed like we had the best cars toward the, the last third of the race, and we kept battling for the win. Unfortunately, we had a really bad pit stop um, and came out pretty far in the back, and I didn't think there was any chance in hell we would get back to him. I don't know. We did. We ran him down from a long way back and, and just had tons of speed. And got by Del Jarrett pretty quickly, and which was which was fortunate. Then we were so much faster than he and and Jeff that when I got to Jeff and he blocked me down the front straightaway, I didn't want to have contact. Like I was trying to avoid the contact because I thought honestly I would just come off turn two and just pass him down the back straightaway. I, I wasn't too concerned about it. And at that point, if he blocked me again, then it would just be whatever happened happened. But I was avoiding contact because we were just that much better. And I just didn't calculate that when I got put that low that I picked up all that rubber and all that sand and all that debris that you have at Darlington. I picked those up on my on my tires. Tires are hot and it picked it all up. I drove into turn one and it didn't think about sticking. And then it was over and I had I had screwed that up. So I had to do it over again. I'd have done something different. But at the time, it was, you know, everything in my brain was this deal's over. We're going to win this race. And he knew it. He made a desperate move and I wasn't going to fall for that. I was just going to, like I said, come off turn two and just easily pass him and just miscalculate that. Thanks to our friends at MRN. We got the call from that 1997 race. I want everyone to take a listen. His car, now the back straightaway, closing in on Jeff Gordon. The two are nose to tail as they close in on lap traffic in turn three. Two car links separate Jeff Gordon right now and Jeff Burton. They come down for the white flag, this time by one more lap around. Burton goes to the inside. They touch, they bump, they head for turn number one, trading sheet metal. Sparks fly side by side coming into the corner, but Gordon drives in faster. He still hangs on to the top spot, but Burton is there off turn two. Now for the final time off turn two, can Jeff Burton do anything? 
anything with Jeff Gordon. Gordon moves over to block, coming back into turn three. Jeff Gordon down to the inside, heading for $1 million off turn four. Gordon slides wide in the corner. Here's Burton, going to make one final run off the corner. Burton looks down to the inside. He'll not be able to do it. Jeff Gordon holds off a last lap charge by Jeff Burton and wins the Mountain Dew Southern 500. And Jeff Gordon wins the Winston Million. And now he and Jeff Burton bang together after the checkered flag over in turn number two after the heavy contact when they came to the white flag. Jeff, Jeff, I tell you what, that's about as close as it gets. I guess the best place to start is what happened when you came to the white flag. Well, you know, Gordon's racing for a million dollars and I got under him. He cut me down and when he cut me down, I, I won't tell the truth. I turned right on him because he turned left and I just didn't get him good enough. And, uh, I thought Jarrett was going to race, but I was going to do my best, make sure he didn't win the race because he cut down on me. And, you know, I'm not saying I wouldn't have done the same thing for a million dollars. You know, you can't blame the guy, but uh, we're here to win too. All right. So, Mark, before we heard the audio, you said, damn, man, I don't need it. I remember it. What For you, you know, Jeff was your teammate then. Like, take, take us back from your standpoint. Like, how'd that, how'd that incident make you feel? Well, I was so proud of, G- of Jeff and what he had accomplished, I have to take you back a little bit um, and kind of give you some background. When the six cars started, we ran uh, several years building a team from five or six uh, members up until, you know, when we added a second team. They added the six team with the uh, promise or hope that we would make the six stronger. But what happened was uh, all the people that were in place, like, say, fabricators and, and whatnot, were, they were really great. They were top of the line that we had for the six car. But we, did, we brought in junior people to, to backfill. And so I never felt like that we brought in the kind of extra talent into the program to strengthen the six car always felt like it was actually pulling us down. And when Jeff came along, uh, he was a rookie now. I mean, fairly much a rookie. He was not a you know, established, successful winning cup driver. And Jack gave him the charge to actually define and be the architect of his entire team outside of our shop. So he didn't get the benefit of our fabricators He didn't get all of that. He managed to put together, choose the people that went on his team and put together a whole organization, choose who hung the bodies on his car and and who worked on them and everything else. He was really smart enough to see that in order to get, you have to give. So he started from day one trying to bring me things that would make my car go faster. He was a, the best teammate you could ever have had in any career. So I was really a Jeff Burton fan. He was a smart guy, hands-on guy that had been the architect of this whole organization. And he was out there taking it to him. And I was really proud of, of the run that he had. Uh, would have loved to have seen him win. But in that day, there was... Uh, still a lot of respect and like Jeff said if he had stayed in there I think they both would have wiped out and that would have been acceptable under the circumstances but 
you know, I, I understand Jeff felt like that he had another opportunity that wasn't his last opportunity and he didn't want to take himself out. So he chose to, uh, take another stab at it and he just didn't get that shot, but what an incredible run. And, uh, I couldn't have been more proud of my teammate. Jeff, that was, I mean, at this point, right. We're talking about that 97 season, Gordon had won 10 by the time that year was done, he was on fire. He's coming off of a championship in 95 and the Labani. So Hendrick was at their pinnacle. They were doing all those things. It must have felt really special for you, as Mark's saying, being the architect of that team and then you guys being at that level, going toe-to-toe with that team. Well, that wasn't the emotions on that day. But in all of it together, it was a really special time because Mark and I had really good people uh, working with us and crew chiefs and uh, we had really we had just had solid people, but we also were intimately involved in what was going on. And um, I don't know, Mark and I never talked about this, but, you know, I kind of feel like I was racing against Ray Everham more than I was racing against Jeff Gordon. Uh, I was pretty sure Jeff Gordon was a smarter driver, was a better driver than I was. I had to build me a car that would go faster than Jeff Gordon. And, you know, that's kind of how Mark and I approached our racing and Mark was a better driver than I was. So he didn't necessarily have to have as good as cars as I did. I needed really good race cars. And I learned early on that if, if my, made my car better to drive, that was going to give me a much better opportunity. So when I look back on it, those are really special times because you can't do that today. There's no way in hell you can do that today. And I mean, I remember the day they made the rule that everyone had to tear their shocks apart. And, you know, everybody, you literally tear your shocks apart at part of tech and everybody could see the parts and pieces. And I was furious because Mark and I knew what was in those shocks and Jeff Gordon and those guys didn't have a damn clue what was in theirs. You know, I was like, well, hold on a minute. We're working our ass off over here and and we don't have a team of all these group of people. This us. We're doing this and you're just giving it to the guy that those drivers that aren't doing it. Like, that's not fair to us. Of course, we lost that argument, but, <laughs> but I took a lot of pride in, in being a, a good race car driver, but I took more pride in being a guy that could help make my car go faster. And so Darlington is the ultimate test of all of that. There's not been many fluke winners at Darlington. There's not been many winners <laughs> at Darlington that people can look down that list and say that guy wasn't a pretty damn good driver. That you know what I mean? Like there's very few that haven't accomplished a fair amount in this sport. And uh, you walk through that tunnel at Darlington has all the winners on it, and it's like that's a damn who's who. And uh, it's just one of those places that, I mean, damn, you just want to win there because it means so much. Whoever, if you ever get to go to Darlington and walk through, you'll see what Jeff's talking about. It's basically a list of Hall of Famers that are on the wall and they're, you know, they have, they have wins. In, your, in the Bush and Xfinity days as well, uh, Mark, you went to Victory Lane eight times. Jeff, you had four, so 12 between the two of you guys. I mentioned this because that 60 Winn-Dixie car, Mark, that thing is forever one of the coolest schemes, and it's so simple, but it was always fast as hell. Were you as uh, involved with the 60 Bush or Xfinity team as you were with the six cup team or how did that work? I was more involved in the Xfinity team. I was, you know, able to be more hands-on. We didn't race every week. You know, we raced, yeah, 14, 14, 15 races a year. And so, uh, you know, there were only maybe a couple of employees uh, on that car. So I 
you know, dictated every the setup, like all eight times. I bet you every single time that we won of those eight races, we had an 1800 and a 1200 and a 400 and a 350, 10 and a half, 11 and a half track bar and an inch and eighth front bar. And somewhere around 51.5 to 52% front weight. I mean, I know, I still know to this day, all the details about that car or those cars, but just as Jeff did and not, you know, when he started the 99, when they started the 99 team, I was able to choose who the chassis builder was, choose who hung the body on the car and how I wanted it hung on because the, the cup guys didn't do that for us. We outsourced uh, that body because we didn't want them to get in the way of the six and the 16 team. So just as the 99 program did you know the 99 program used totally separate uh people and and a shop and and all that from the the six and the 16 and they showed us he and those guys showed us something and they made the six car better and we learned from them because they did some things differently and you know i was hard-headed as all get out you know i i thought i knew what i wanted and i didn't always want what was best you know and some once in a while jeff showed me that uh you could do it another way better so we, we were I, I had my share of hard-headedness too for sure but you know what was funny about those xfinity those xfinity days was that there was this perception in the garage that we had this fleet of cars they had all our cup dry team working on them that they were in the wind tunnel all the time, man, it was as primitive as you could do it. It was, it was none of that going on. And, and they, people hire your guys and they'd hire, you know what I mean? We're going to get all that. Hell, it wasn't any of that. And it worked until Joe Gibbs decided they were going to start Xfinity racing and they did it different. Like they came in and say, they treated it more like a cup team. Well then, our stuff didn't work anymore. We had to, we were gonna have to reinvent it, and it uh, it really changed the way we competed. But yeah, I mean, those Xfinity programs were they were bare bone. They were not what people thought they were, and we didn't tell anybody. Like we just kind of kept that to ourselves how we did it because we didn't really want anybody to know how we did it. Those were fun days too. Those were really fun days. Man, you could have your fingerprints all over that stuff. <laughs> And I mean, even down to strategy, like we're going to do this during the race. And it was, I mean, it was just, just no pressure. That was the other thing. I don't know how to describe this. It is such an advantage. And think about this for a moment. It is such an advantage to be a cup driver. That's winning some races on the cup side and get an Xfinity car. You can do any damn thing you want. If you drive that thing in the corner and you spin it out or you back it in the wall Nobody cares a damn thing about it. They, it's a car's fault. And it is such an advantage to race free, to race with for not points. You're just going over there to have a good time. That's why you're doing it. That's the only reason we did it. We, it helped our cup programs, I think. But really, it was just fun to do. That's hard to beat somebody. That's a massive advantage that Xfinity regulars and truck regulars got to go up against. You don't know what a huge difference it makes to not be racing for points either. Mm. I mean, it is a completely different feel to not have that pressure on your back to minimize the damage on any particular day instead of worrying about, you know, just trying to maximize 
your result at at any any cost. So we were able to go over there and race and not have to worry about yeah that that move might cost me three points. I I mean, so Jeff, that when you were driving the nine, where where in the years are we that you're kind of talking about there? Well, the nine was the uh, the nine. So the 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 Roush Xfinity program changed a fair amount as time went by. Right. Uh, but, but the early portion of the dime was, was, yeah, the way yeah. that, that I described, uh, I can't say that we ended like that because right. we, we, we started having to try to step our program up, but the early portions of the nine was, yeah, it was pretty simply done. I mean, I remember you guys, it was like, you guys were doing, you had a rotating of drivers, you had your cup guys all coming through it, and it didn't matter who got in those things, you guys were hauling ass at every track. Like, they had to go through the Rashketeers if you were going to win an Xfinity race back then. Uh, cup racing, too. I mean, we were, we were strong, you know, we were, at one point, we were up to five teams, and all five, we had 50% of the playoffs was was called the chase at the time fifty uh, yeah. percent we had five five drivers all five uh cup teams in the in the top ten so uh talking about your Roush teammates we're going to go back to Darlington and talk about the two thousand and three spring race Kurt Bush Ricky Craven we're going to listen to the call right here. Five laps to go as they come down to the stripe. It is now down in car links and one lap car separating Kurt Busch from Ricky Craven. Brett Bodine gives away on the inside. That allows Craven to keep the momentum up. He has closed it down. Five, maybe six car lengths now. The deficit for Ricky Craven on the Tide Pontiac. No lap traffic to deal with for the front two. Kurt Busch and Ricky Craven onto the back straightaway. They have left Dave Blaney. Blaney now will deal with some lap traffic as the front two take the high side in turn three. Craven still carving into Kurt Busch's lead. Gaining on him every lap around. Catching is one thing. Getting around is another. But he is there. Only two car links separate the front two right now as they go back to turn one. Ricky Craven on the hunt. Puts the bullseye on the back bumper of Kurt Busch's Ford. Closes it down to two car lengths. A car length and a half. Again, eating into the margin off two. Now up against the concrete comes both the leaders. Down the back straightaway. Ricky Craven continuing to close in. Off the end of the back straightaway. Kurt Busch using the inside lane. Now darts up to the top of the racetrack and Craven again closing in even more in turn four. Only three laps to go. Can Ricky Craven make it happen? Kurt Busch is in command but Craven now right up on the bumper and here across the line starts looking to the inside for the lead. Craven looks down to the inside. Kurt Busch slams the door on him as they enter turn number one. Craven falls back in line. Drops back by a car link. Tries to gather it up and make another run at him on the back stretch. It's very clear that in turns three and four Ricky Craven's race car is much faster than Kurt Busch's. Here they come at the entrance to the corner. One car lane separate the top two. Bush goes to the top. Here comes Craven looking down on the inside trying to take the lead away. Kurt Busch put a good block on to keep him on the outside up in turn number four as they come back to the line. He is there this time. He's going after the lead in turn one. Ricky Craven, Kurt Busch side by side. They bump. Bush brushes the wall. They bounce off each other. Craven has the lead. Bush bumps him. Craven to the outside and Bush back underneath. Re- 
regains the touch box. Now here comes Ricky Craven trying to regain that lost ground. Bush back to the lead on the back straightaway. Ricky Craven in hot pursuit, pedal to the metal, and Dave Blaney joins this battle. Here's Bush, two car lengths down in front. Here comes Craven again using the high lane on the move in four. Getting physical here at Darlington Raceway like it's supposed to be. Craven has another shot, but only one. The white flag out this time. Kurt Busch leads by inches back to turn one. The gloves are off. Craven is there and in turn one. Half a car length back. Bush drifts high. Craven unable to make a move. They'll remain single file. Craven now to the inside. Here they come off turn two. Racing for the lead and the win. The crowd on the back straightaway is just going delirious. Bush, Craven, nose to tail. Here comes Craven up top. Bush goes up to block. Here comes Craven down to the bottom trying to hang on. Both cars are loose in four. Craven pours all the steam. Pulls to the inside lane. They are dead even coming down to the line. This is going to be close. They lean on one another. Across the line, Ricky Craven gets the win, and they continue the crash headed up into turn one. Craven pounds the wall, bounces off it. Kurt Busch right back at him. Ricky Craven has won the race. The only question now is, will he be able to make it back to victory lane? Thanks again to MRN for for the audio. I mean, you gotta love listening to those calls. For, so, I, I'm from New England, so I was pulling hard for the 32 and Ricky Craven on that day. And I remember jumping in front of the screen when he crossed the line. And my dad got so mad at me, he hit me in the back of that. He's like, you're blocking the screen. And, uh, but that was one of the coolest and closest finishes that we've ever seen. Yeah, and it wasn't just that coming for the, the, the you know, that last straightaway. I mean, that, was, that battle was absolutely phenomenal. And the contact, the, the mild contact that was made throughout those last few laps, I, it's amazing that you can do that. I'm talking about a racetrack, you know, 150, 60, 70 miles an hour. You just don't lean on each other and not wreck. You're already wrecking. I mean, if that other car wasn't even out there, you would be just about to wreck. It was incredible, the race that they were able to put on. Masterful for job from both Ricky and Kurt. And just absolutely coming across the start-finish line with the smoke flying. And each guy turned directly into the other. You know, both of them turned, you know, and it's just like smoke flying and you know, just perfectly side by side. It was amazing. Jeff, what, what did you? What was your take on that finish? Was it? Is it up there for you? Is it one of your? You know, as a fan, is it one of your favorite finishes? All right, so selfish race car driver. Yeah, here we go. Yeah. Uh, I raced with Ricky and Kurt early in that race, and I had their ass beat, and we broke a motor. That's what I remember. <laughs> so, so Jeff is not one of <laughs> Jeff's favorite races, period. <laughs> I'm, I remember going up on the pit box because uh, Jack always sat on Mark's pit box, which I always thought was cool, right? Like, I'm Jack Roush, and this is Mark Martin. I sit on his pit box. I always thought that was cool. And I remember crawling up that pit box and saying, man, <laughs> I don't know what happened to that motor, but we had their ass beat. <laughs> and Jack Jack said, I'm, you know, he's, I'm sorry, man, we figured it out. But who knows? I probably got lapped. You know what I mean? Y'all, yeah. y'all we're going to win every race you fell out of. You know how that goes. <laughs> but, you know, that, the, the, the respect that uh, I think Mark and I both have for Darlington make that race that much more special because he said it, how difficult it is just to get around the track at a, at a pace that can win a race and then to do it in that kind of battle and, and do it in a way that, I mean, they raced hard, really, really hard, but that was exceptionally respectful at the same time. And then they both recognized, uh, you know, it's easy for Ricky to recognize it's harder for Kurt to recognize because he didn't win. Right. 
how special that moment was. And they both realized that they were part of history and, and you don't, and I thought that I always thought that was cool that Kurt in defeat was really understood the moment. And, and that's hard to do. I mean, it's, it's so hard to take a step back uh, and recognize how, how that's part of history. I didn't do it when, when Jeff beat me at Darlington, you know, I got out and said some stupid crap and, and, you know, I couldn't, I was just stuck in the moment, like my moment, my selfish moment, not the sport moment. And Kurt was able to do that. And, and I always thought that was pretty cool. Mark, we're talking about 2003, Kurt, not 2022, Kurt. That's a very different individual and his growth and maturity, obviously on and off the racetrack. I feel like Kurt Busch is, is an underrated leader in the garage. And when he goes to an organization and he... He's he was over there helping lead the charge at twenty three eleven this year and got a win for them early and you're like wow this is really gonna help them and then he got hurt and we hear the news that he's not coming back for the playoffs does a very classy thing pulls his request to make it back in out before then because he could have he could have held it in until Bristol and then tried to get it in Bristol and try to win Bristol and make it through the make it through the next round of the playoffs talk about that growth a little bit for us for Kurt and and you obviously saw him young and how do you view him now uh, I agree with you as being a senior leader in the in the sport today and with a race team very valuable he didn't start there. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff will back me up on this one because Jeff had an even harder time with him than I did when he came into Roush as a uh, you know teenage kid hitting everything in sight and and beating you know the dash the the gauges out of the dashes and all the things that he did. So he's come a long way. I haven't always had respect for Kurt's ability, amazing ability. Some of the top, you know, top ability that I've ever witnessed. But to see him go through the transformation that he has um, and the hard knocks that he's had to take in that were pretty much self-induced um, and to come out on the other side and be what I consider a very, very admirable, you know, valuable asset to a race team is pretty darn cool. So I like seeing that. I think that, you know, it was like uh, sort of, you know, the old saying death by a thousand cuts. I mean, it, he had to set out one race. Then he had to set out, you know, the, at the end of the day, it really isn't his choice anyway. You know, after he has to set out so many races and then not being sure where he would fall, you know, after the playoff start. I feel like it was a little bit easier decision to make, although still he could have been more selfish and tried to stay in it until the bitter end. Yeah, you got to you got to really tip the cap to him and leading in all sports, right? Because, you know, head injuries and in all sports are really serious and and you don't see people take this stance very much because you don't want someone else to do your job. He, uh, as a quarterback, you don't want anyone else taking those snaps. You don't want anyone else in your race car. Um, so from that standpoint, I'm like, man, he's really showing everybody how important 
you know, your health is. And Jeff, I feel like you've been a guy in the garage that people have leaned on to try and help mature some some drivers. And I've heard Kevin talk about how you were one of his favorite teammates all, uh, all time. What what does that transformation from Kurt look like from your standpoint? Well, Kurt's just a different man than he than he was. And and Kurt has you said it earlier, Kurt is a leader in the garage area and Kurt is, um, he's a guy I talk to a lot. You know, I, I talk to Kurt a lot and, and trying to seek counsel about, you know, things with, with drivers and what's going on in the sport. Kurt has a perspective that I, I find very healthy and he's very honest, very straightforward. He's experienced things. A lot of people haven't experienced both good and bad. And that perspective is important. You know, when Kurt, unfortunately, you know, got injured, we all know no one's going to get in that race car and go faster. Right. But he doesn't know that. Right. And it's a horrible feeling when, when you have to get out of that race car and can't do what it is that you want to do. Kurt wants to be here. Kurt wants to be driving that race car. Kurt is not, you know, every time, anytime you get to a certain age and you're racing, you know, people point the finger and say, oh, he's doing it for the money, all that bull crap. Kurt's here because he loves to be here. And it's what he knows. And he is at a time in his career where he's uh, synced up with his skill and his mindset, right? He's synced up. He might could have had more success early in his career if he could have gotten that synced up earlier. We all, we all do that at different times. But regardless of what Kurt was, we all change and we all hopefully grow. He is now a leader. And he is now a leading by example because he could have – he could have done this. He could have said, hey, I'm going to take this race per race. I'm going to, I might be okay by Bristol. Mm-hmm. He could have done that. Yep. And NASCAR granted him a waiver and he could have held that spot, that playoff spot. And he didn't, he chose not to do that. And I, I, I think that says enough. And he did it for the right reasons. I talked to Kurt Busch. He did it for the right reasons. He didn't do it for any other reason other than the right reason, and that's his health. And taking the pressure off of having to make that decision two weeks from now or three weeks from now, not only taking it off of him, taking it off his doctors so that there is no pressure on the doctor. He's just doing it for Kurt's health, right? It's horrible that he's out. We should not, you know, it's just horrible that we got – you know, a, a guy with a head injury that, that, you know, we just can't have that. And, and, and uh, it's, 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 it's horrible that he's out, but in being out, he's showing everybody how mature he is and the kind of person that he is now. And, and uh, I hope he can come back. I hope he can get himself in a situation where he feels comfortable. The doctors feel comfortable and it's worth it to him to come back. If he ultimately makes a decision not to, like we all end up having to do at some point, then I hope he can do that at peace. Like, right. He, he, it, and it will be harder for him that. because yeah, he deserves that the yep. same way Mark deserves it. in the same way that anybody that puts the work in deserves it. People don't put the work in or just damn good. And don't, you know, and because they're good, they get by with being lazy. I don't give a damn about them to be quite honest with you, but a guy like Kurt, he's willing to work and he's worked his whole life and worked his whole career to be here. And that guy deserves to leave the way he wants to. And I hope he, I hope he gets that opportunity the same way. I hope everybody gets the opportunity. Um, and I'm not saying any, I don't know, you know, obviously it's a, it's a cloudy future at the moment. And, uh, I just hope it goes down the way he wants it to. Yeah. 
One hundred percent. I I think uh, so. Kurt, he was there at Stuart Haas when I was there, and one of the coolest things that I've ever had anyone do, he bought all of us that was in the shop, all of us, hundreds of people, a checkered flag, and he signed each and every one of those and gave them to everybody in the shop. Not just the 41 guys, but everybody that was a part of the organization. And that's just that's just the kind of guy he is. I, and to your point, Jeff, I hope that uh, he's able to ride out however he wants to ride out. So, Kurt, we think about you, buddy. Hope you... Uh, Hope you get well soon and get back in that race car. Uh, looking back to Darlington, we, you just mentioned it, Jeff, pressure. The pressure that is on playoff drivers. The pressure to make the playoffs, because we talked about it. If you're not in, well, it's not fun. And, and now that you're in, now you got to perform at that next high level. When you guys were – you guys had a system that was a little different. Talk about the pressures of – you know, making a deep run in the season and trying to make it to that last race and be in the championship picture? Well, I, I would say making the cutoff is tremendous pressure because I've been on the bubble. In 09, I was on the outside looking in, and we were so fast in 09, but we had had uh, mechanical problems. We'd broken uh, two or three engines and then had some accidents as well. And so we were too far behind and going into the last race, there was a super chance that we wouldn't, that, that we wouldn't make the cutoff. It was uh, terribly pressure. And I don't know that there was a whole lot of financial. I don't know the numbers that were riding on it. I know that the numbers are different now and they're, they're bigger probably now than they were then for just as a competitor. It is in extreme and the crazy thing about that was, that system was, even though I liked the traditional system where it was a season-long accumulation, after the first race of the chase, I was the point leader. I was the lead. I led. I was leading, which could not have had, gave me a shot at the championship that I never would have had without that system. So, you know, there are pluses and minuses to all kinds of systems. I love what we do now. I really love it. We've got, you know, the thrill and excitement, you know, every three races of being uh, a cutoff. So there's that drama and pressure again every time. And so you just have to relive that and relive that and relive that if you do make it. So there's probably more pressure today than ever, not only from, you know, the financial side of making it, but then if you do make it in advance, it's whew. Now we got to do it again. <laughs> yeah. And then whew. Now we got to do it again. Yeah. I'm horrible with the years. Uh, I don't know if 2009 is the year Richmond was the last race. Um, I just don't remember last race in the playoff or in the regular season. It was. And I don't know. I know there was one year you and I both were, I mean, it was really close between a lot of us, Tony Stewart ended up being the one that didn't get in. And I remember that's a Saturday night race. And I'm, you know, you wake up Saturday morning and it's like, damn, I mean, you, it's 88 hours before the race starts. It feels like, <laughs> and I, I remember going to Mark's motorhome saying, man, this sucks. <laughs> like it's so much pressure <laughs> and, you know, anybody that, and I was pretty convinced one of us was not going to make it like, and I was driving, I was driving for Childers. I wasn't driving for for Jack or and and uh, we weren't teammates anymore. Right. 
But I remember going to, to see to see him that morning. And I'm like, man, this sucks. Like this is and you're going to Richmond. I mean, Tony Stewart's not going to run. I mean, he ran like crap, but that was really unusual yeah. for Tony Stewart to run bad. Uh, I just I get my years confused for sure. But but I just remember going in that that last race just in a knot and everything, any little thing going wrong and every I don't say every lap, but pretty damn near every lap. You're like, OK, where is you know, you where's that guy? Where's that guy running? You know what I mean? Because, you know, the points, you know, the way it works. You're paying attention. You're watching everybody that affects you because you might have to change your strategy. Like you might have to change your mindset about what, what to do. And uh, it's stressful as hell. It's, it's uh, anybody that can get to the point where that's just fun. That's a different dude right there. <laughs> oh man. Look, like I obviously I've never raced in a situation where like there's a cutoff like that other than the snowflake 100 trying to qualify in on time because you qualify in on time and that's respect earned, right? You 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 showed up, you did what you're supposed to do and you were one of 30 to qualify in without. And I got to tell you I was in knots for about 25 minutes sitting and watching every car take time, and we just keep falling and falling. You're sitting on that bubble, and you just want to throw up all over yourself because it means so much to you. You talk about pressure. This past weekend at Daytona, you know, you you just mentioned it, Jeff. You're paying attention to where the people are that can affect you. Well, you know, outside of the top 16, there is to 30th that could affect Ryan Blaney and Martin Truex Jr. And then, you know, Kurt pulls it, rescinds, right? So, oh, it looks like Ryan's going to be pretty fine. Just get some stage points and he'll be okay. False. Gets in a wreck before the end of stage one. And they did something that we haven't seen in a long time. And, and Mark, they did it to one of your cars back in the 90s. They patched that thing up and he just made laps and made laps. We that's just something we don't see anymore. I was surprised that they were able to fix that car as well as they did. Yeah, with the way the rules are today, you know, it's not as advantageous. You know, that you're usually not in a position to be able to do that, really. NASCAR, you know, that was not really the best thing to do. Parts flew off those cars when we patched them up like that and caused cautions and, you know, changed outcomes of races and all kinds of things. So, it was a different time back then, but it's still critical. Yep. I mean, they're still trying to just get that one or two. That one point could be the difference, you know, of making it or being in or being out or or whatever. So there's a lot rides on it. And if there's any way that these teams can do it, they're going to do it. If there's anything that they can do to score one more point, they're going to do it. Jeff, it came down to three points. Blaney in, Truex out. You know, we talk about winning you're in. Sometimes you got to be lucky. That's just, uh, sometimes you got to be lucky because without things happening the way it did, the 12 is outside the points. So what is, is it relief now because you're under the pressure leading in or is there more pressure ratcheted up? Me and Latar talked about this on Backseat Driver earlier, and he was like, man, that's, that's exhausting going through all that. It depends on who you are. Right. So I think that Chase Elliott goes into this playoff as, a, as the, the favorite. So he's got that pressure on, on him. Uh, Ryan Blaney can go into this playoffs with, damn, we just dodged a bullet. Like we're playing with house money here. That car hit 
the outside wall and the angle that it hit. And there's no way. Like, I, I don't, to this moment, I have no idea. And then on top of that, think about in the race when that happened. All right, so put all this back together. This is three points over 26 races. Four positions in 26 races. If he could have found a way to pick up four positions, not in every one of those 26 races, in those 26 races, he advances. Ryan Blaney hits the wall, right? They come in. They got six minutes to work on it. It's at the end of a stage. He goes out. He meets minimum speed, which you had to do to reset, to make the damage vehicle policy clock go away. He does that as the caution, as the green and checkered is coming for the stage in. So now he has it. Now he can go work on the car under caution. Like all of that stuff, if you go back and look at it, you think it was just meant to be. And, and how else could you explain it? I mean, there's no other car I've seen hit like that all year long. They was able to repair it to keep going. There were cars that wrecked in that wreck uh, when it started raining that didn't look like to me they hit anywhere near as hard, and they, didn't, they couldn't go on. So a lot of stuff had to happen for, for that to all go down the way it went down. And this, when if you're Ryan Blaney, you just shake your head and you're like, okay, it was meant to be. And that's how you go into playoffs. Like you don't, there's no pressure. Like you, there's zero pressure on him in my eyes. Now he's got to get there. Right. But I think it's a whole lot easier for him going in these playoffs like that than it is for some other guys that have, that are, that have uh, been winning more races. For, for me, the lunatic in my head <laughs> doesn't agree with you. I'm Blaney. Now I'm like psycho because I've got, you know, I've got, I've got three races to get my act together and keep, you know, because I can still win this championship. Oh yeah! And so I'm like triple tormented now. It's like this, you know, I'm like, I, we've got to go. We've got to get this thing figured out. You know, we've got to go. So I don't know. It's just, uh, I think it depends on the individual. Yeah. Well, the, the million dollar man. He was the luckiest man at Daytona. Uh, Ryan Blaney won the all-star race, but that does not count to get into the playoffs. It might look good in the bank account, but it doesn't mean anything at the end. So he's in. So what are we looking forward to for Darlington? I know both of you guys really respect this place. It's a, a race of attrition as well as the driver and the car. We're gonna we're testing all the limits here. What are we looking forward to? You can't go fast at Darlington if you don't attack it. And if you attack it, you're going to hit. It's it's what it's what makes it awesome. It's why I think I was good there because my 100% was 95% compared to some others. Some others, if they went to their 100%, they couldn't have finished the races. My 100% was not. It's going as hard. I Meaning, you know, Tyler Reddick, his 100% is different yeah. than some other guys, right? Mm-hmm. So it's one of the reasons that that track suited me. So the guys that there's some guys that have to back themselves up just a touch to be able to go 500 there. There's other guys that can, they're per, Denny Hamlin. He's perfectly fine. Go to his hundred percent. He's fine. And that's why that track is so hard. And there's going to be moments in that race where you're asked to give a little more, like you're going to have to give a little bit more to get the result that you need at whatever part of the race it is. And where is that edge? And there's only one way to find it. And so 
that to me is why this Darlington is the perfect race for round one. Like race one in the playoffs, Darlington, let's get it right on, guys. Like, let's do it. Let's go to the one of the hardest racetracks in the damn world and let's have a race and see. And and with all that pressure, with all that stuff, with everything on the line, we're going right here to the Southern 500. I mean, the damn Southern 500. It's Daytona, then just a little tiny bit behind it is the Southern 500. <laughs> and it's just a little. And it's just an awesome place to start it because of all that. And I really, I believe all that. I, I, there's, I got a Southern 500 trophy sitting right there. And I'm telling you that one, that's the big one. It just, that's the big one. Mark. Uh, that, that Jeff's right. The hardest one for a driver to win for a driver to win is the Southern 500. Now I would say Daytona a lot of times, especially in our era, the hardest race to win car wise was, was Daytona, the mm-hmm. Daytona 500, but it might not necessarily be the hardest driver. Well, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't in the same league as the rate of difficulty that you experience as a driver at Darlington. So, uh, it's good, you know, it's exciting. Anytime they have a race there, it's, it's awesome. But, uh, I, you know, I'm excited to see what happens every week. The racing, in 2022 has been absolutely over, you know, over the roof. I mean, I have been so pleased with the way these cars have raced as a fan. Now I'm not speaking as a driver and Jeff has a different perspective because he's inside the garage and, you know, and, and, uh, Harrison races. And so he's a lot more connected to what's going on, but as a fan, you could not ask, for a better season than what we've had in 2022. And then you take that to Darlington for the seven 500 and kick off the, the playoffs, man, let's do it. I mean, I thought last year was pretty awesome. I'm like, damn, they promoted it as being the best season ever. It was pretty good, but I got to be honest. I think this one has topped it going into the playoffs. So if you want a piece of history, a piece of NASCAR history, make sure you find your way to Darlington for the Southern 500. It's going on this weekend. There's a lot of excitement around the NASCAR Cup Series as the drama of the playoff unfolds. Another thing to get hyped for is the new NASCAR docuseries, Race for the Championship. You're not going to want to miss it. Be sure to tune in each Thursday night, 10 p.m. Eastern Time on USA Network. Thank you again. This is Mark Mamba and the Mayor Podcast.